Welcome to the number one South Asian radio station in North America. Ruckus Avenue Radio. I'm a doctor, a father, an American, an Indian. I've had conversations about life from every angle, and as I've navigated the South Asian experience, I share stories of people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, I'm joined by award-winning chef, author, and Food Network personality, Manit Chauhan. Stay tuned. Near Shivaji Park in Mumbai, there's a tiny juice stand called Renuka and a little restaurant called the Gypsy Corner that sells pao bhaji. And every single time I go to India, I make sure to hustle my way over to those spots to taste some deliciousness. It's not just the food itself, but it's the experience, right? Drinking refreshing juice on a hot day in a small crowded lane or going for a walk around the neighborhood after a tasty meal. Here in the States, it's probably no different than the local taqueria or pizza maker that every neighborhood has, but we crave and long for those places and the food that we have a relationship with. In essence, the people are loyal to the food and the food is loyal to the people, which is why I was thrilled to have a conversation with award-winning chef, restaurateur, and food network personality, Manit Johan. Manit grew up in India, has deep experiences as an executive chef globally, and now lives in Nashville, where she and her husband have successfully launched several terrific restaurants that are creatively filling gaps in the local food landscape. She's been a judge on the hit show Chopped and is currently competing in the Tournament of Champions, both on Food Network. Her latest book is called Chak, Recipes from the Kitchens, Markets, and Railways of India. We talked about the allure of Chak, comfort foods, and her competitiveness, but we started by talking about a common comfort for both of us, vanilla. I read that you're a fan of vanilla, and I live in a very, very heavy chocolate household. So uh, as another fan of vanilla, I appreciate this camaraderie. I knew that I would find something in common right away, so I appreciate that. I love vanilla because you can add anything to it. So you can add chocolate to it and make it chocolate. That's but you right. cannot add anything to chocolate to make it vanilla. You are as absolutely as that. right. I don't know. I, I need to have this kind of lecture <laughs> with my family. I'm very grateful for that. Let me ask you this. I mean, it's been such an amazingly challenging and peculiar year in, in this sort of pandemic culture. And do you find any of the... Um, you know, even the because this was such a shift from your from your previous work, and you know, you had to adapt, and and some of it actually went in the form of service to your employees and to the community. Um, did you find yourself reverting back from a food standpoint to some of the things that were tried and true and tested? Did that make more sense in that way from a nostalgia standpoint? I mean, I absolutely. The one thing which I took on was the fact that on social media, I'm going to try to give people at least one reason to smile and be it through showing recipes that I mean, that we cook every day. So yeah. those were a lot of recipes that we were, uh, you know, like Vivek and I, we would have this conversation that what should we make today? And then it would be like, oh my God, kachoris. So yeah. then, you know, we, we would do, we would do kachoris. And then as we are eating, we would analyze like what is right or what is wrong with yeah. it. So, so yeah, it's, it's been fun. But to me, um, I do, uh, I do try to collect a lot from, uh, you know, memories, conversations 
conversations, nostalgia when it comes to food, even when it is, um, you Not know, the pandemic. menus in the restaurants, yeah. because that is, that's, you know, to me, that is the reason why I became a chef. So that's, that's constantly in my repertoire. When you have found the time to say, hey, yes, this is an ongoing feel for remembering recipes and then creating something new from it, have you found that the pandemic or even this notion of adapting to a new sort of climate and culture, has it sparked that much more innovation for that matter? Absolutely. I think after the initial shock of what's just happening, I think it just was a matter of figuring out how we are going to survive, right? Yeah. And that is, I think, the most incredible part about this whole thing was just seeing the resilience that you see in people and businesses. The fact that, you know, all of these interesting ideas were coming up, uh, you know, on how to deliver, on how to, I mean, in fact, yesterday, the event that I did, which was for the, you know, City Taste of Tennis, this is usually you're on a stage with a tennis player and you're cooking yeah. together, but we couldn't. So there was, you know, Monica Sellis on the other side while yeah. I was over here and we it was an entire Zoom setup. And the only reason was because of the fact, because of the pandemic. And mm. this is something that we would have never thought of right. uh, pre-pandemic because you're like, do what you've got to do and, you know, we'll, yeah. we'll just take it from there. In that same way of reframing and repackaging and, and innovating, um, have you found that some of those relationships that you have through food have changed? Meaning, you know, you're no longer cooking um, to a live uh, person who's tasting, but rather it's the demonstration or it's the Zoom effect of how you're actually doing this. How is that relationship, has your relationship with with the person who's tasting your food or this concept of, of leftovers and keeping, has that changed at all this year? Uh, it has. To me, I've always like when, especially uh, one of my biggest things is when I'm, when I do, you know, demos yeah. uh, in, in front of audiences. To me, what fuels me is, you know, is the people's reaction, yeah. right? Uh, it is, uh, you know, it's an act that you're putting and, you know, if anybody is engaged. So usually in the audience, I used to always find my support audience you know there were four or five people who would be looking at you like yes what you're saying means the whole world and I would always gravitate to that and and that would make my my demo my performance my interaction a lot easier now yeah. with zoom you really cannot do that so I think that has been good because then uh, uh, I've been able to um, to do these demos in front of a, a camera you know without without needing to make eye contact with someone yeah. right so which which in a way is fantastic because now i can do even when it's television it's easier to do a monologue as opposed to because i'm a big person with dialogues right i yeah. i want that conversation yeah and uh i just i also realized like my absolute uh, not tolerance uh what would i say the word would be the uh the depth of of BS I can get into when there is complete <laughs> silence of stories of getting on mango trees and, yeah, yeah. and stuff because you've got to fill that that, that right. space up. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's interesting to carry on that conversation. Well, you know, and speaking of, you know, interesting stories and the conversation to build, right? I mean, food is such a central part of, for all of us, gratefully, um, but for you, especially recently, this was a conversation centered around chaat. And, and how did that evolve? Where did that concept come from? I mean, it's such a, a wonderful staple 
in in many of our sort of lives in that way. But how did that how did that actually evolve to say, hey, let's describe this in a book format? So I grew up in India, uh, in eastern India, in this really small town called Ranchi. Uh, and summer uh, vacation used to be in Bangalore with my mom's parents. And mm-hmm. winter vacation used to be in Ludhiana in Punjab with my dad's parents. Yeah. Uh, we would travel by trains, right? Yeah. And the trains in India are so different from the trains over here. I mean, they take three days, three nights, stop at each and every small village. And the the fun part used to be that, you know, in each and every town, the local vendors would come to sell their wares over there, right? And a lot of it had to do with food. And the amazing part about Indian food is the diversity of Indian food, right? From one state to the other, it's a different cuisine. It's like uh, so many different flavors and techniques. So I remember I used to really look forward for those train journeys, um, even though it used to be hot and muggy and like <laughs> there was no air conditioning and stuff, but uh, the folly of youth, right? Yeah. Uh, but I, um, I used to really look forward to it because I was like, oh, you know, at uh, Vijayawada, we are going to have this. Rice. At, you know, at Chennai, uh, the curd rice with yes. lemon rice, right? And banana leaves. So I literally, like those were things which, uh, th- that was like a food journey. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, uh, in India, like especially these charts, which I think in, like especially here in America, Indian food still has the perception of curry. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And curry is a is a very small fraction of what Indian food is really right. about. Uh, yes. So so when I started, you know, thinking about this, I'm like, yeah, a lot of the people who would come, they would they would, uh, you know, be selling uh, charts or version of charts, be chana mm. chart or, yeah. you know, um, and then uh, on top of that chart also translated from Hindi means to lick. Yeah. Right. So I wanted to come up with a book which was uh, which was almost uh, an ode to all those, you know, street vendors who've yeah. made, you know, not only train journeys, but even, the, you know, the streets the and all so delicious. Yeah. Exactly. Like, you know, those Golgappa competitions that yes. we would have, which as kids, we were not allowed to have them because they didn't know where the water was coming from. Right. We right. still did it regardless. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Vivek and I, we go to like, uh, you know, Jaipur, his family's in Jaipur, whenever we go there, you know, we are like, Golgappa competition in both of us. Yeah, (laughs) we are having like, finding the Bisleri uh, Golgappas and having like, you know, and you know, our nephews like, oh, go on, go uncle. So it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, you can't duplicate that experience, right? I mean, just the the pao you find on the street someplace, or sarafa in Indore near my wife's family's um, home, and and those kinds of things are are just really really magical. And I imagine that for those here in the states, they they may find that akin to the sort of you know wonderful uh, road trip that they might take for that special food stand or that special you know place that they've gone, or even to family foods in, in that way. Is there a sense of comfort that comes with that, even, you know, now thinking about that? Absolutely. I mean, it is, uh, I mean, you know, when I think about these or even, you know, there are times um, memories are, um, memories have such a sensory 
you know, uh, trigger to it, that there are some bites that you take and it just transforms you to a certain place. Or uh, or the fact that I spend so much time trying to recreate a taste, which would remind me of Manipal, right? Like Vivek and I, we did our undergrad from there. Like, and the vada pav uh, we used to get over there was incredible or like the pav bhaji. Uh, I mean, in fact, so much so that uh, the last restaurant which we opened is called Chatable, mm-hmm. you know, and and in it Nashville, is I believe in correct? Nashville, yeah. yeah. And that place is like literally, we threw color on each and every wall, and it could have gone completely wrong, <laughs> but somehow it all fell into place, and it looks yeah. gorgeous. So yeah. we want people when they step into that restaurant to have just a little glimpse of what what a sensory overload India is. And, and I'm I'm curious about one thing you mentioned that all these little snippets of comfort and experience and trying to recreate that, that magic or that experience with you. Um, is there, you know, are, are those also master chefs? Are those folks who made those little morsels? Are they themselves the, the teachers here, especially for someone who's trying to create all of these kinds of experiences for someone else? To me, I think they are the OGs. I yeah. mean, they literally are. I mean, I mean, think about it. There is the amount of innovation that you see in Indian street food is crazy. Yeah. Every time I go there, there's something interesting. My my mom is uh, showing me the last time I was there, it was around Diwali and she's showing me the ad, um, uh, an ad for Dunkin' Donuts. And it is Motichur Laddu Dunkin' Donuts. Wow. That is what wow. India is. Like, uh, I mean, yeah. once you have a pizza in India, yeah. You know, your, your chicken tikka or your paneer tikka pizza, you're like, why is, why is everything so boring, right? right? <laughs> so, so I think that they not only are uh, people who are constant innovators, yeah. uh, Chinese dosa, Shezwan yeah. dosa, right? Yeah. Uh, but I also think that then there is this entire, like those purists, mm. uh, we were in, for the book, we had gone to uh, Chandni Chowk and there was this one... Um, guy who was uh, selling chole kulche and it was on his um, bicycle mm-hmm. uh, he's got a big pot behind him everything else is in front of him first of all the the economy of space is mind blowing right and he's right over there and he said that he is the fourth generation in his family to be doing this and it's the same taste and people wow. form a line for it and that is it it's sold it's sold it's gone yeah. Right. So to me, like, so so they are those purists and then yeah. they are those innovators. Like if you can't find inspiration on the streets <laughs> of India, yeah. you will never find inspiration anywhere. Right. Right. And I think it's it's the the beauty of it is looking for it, observing it, taking it in, soaking it in and, and allowing for that. Um, and, and I imagine that, you know, to translate that to a uh, a global audience, right? For to anybody who's coming to visit one of your your restaurants um, or any of your food sort of experiences in medicine, we are always talking about this balance between the art and science of things as sort of like this creative tension. Um, and for someone who's trying to create a food experience, are, are there similar tensions that you're constantly going through be- between you know trying to make something to scale versus an intimate, intimately spectacular sort of meal? How, how do you balance that? Even this, you know, tension between tradition and purism versus um, innovation or, you know, the idea of experimentation versus tradition. How, how are, what are some of those balances that you kind of go through? I, I think this is, 
I think this has got to do a lot with age also, right? Yeah. <laughs> like when, when you're younger, you are like, this is it. I am going to go and I'm going to, you know, conquer the world. And it's my idea. I'm cooking my food, yeah. right? And then as you start getting older, you're like, yes, you are cooking your food, which is very important. But you also need to be cooking for an audience because you are also running a business. And if you like, you know, Karela doesn't mean that the whole world likes it. Right. right. So, so does then anyone actually like Karela? I hope. I, oh, I my God. <laughs> my husband and my sister, yeah. they both love Karela. Like, right. I can't uh, I, I can't make enough of it. Exactly. Okay. But yeah. That's it. I haven't met anybody else who does. So, yeah, but just the two closest people in my life. Right, that's right. it. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that's that's basically it. Yes, it's a constant struggle. Like as a, um, you know, uh, as an artist, all I want to do is just create a dish. Uh, mm. But I know that if I'm just going to create a dish uh, and if it's really spectacular, I will not be able to replicate it if I am not making sure that I, I myself am acknowledging the steps that I'm making. And at times it's, it's, it is like, uh, when I'm, I'm seasoning something, literally one of my team members is under, you know, like I'm putting something, they have a bowl under it. They're like, chef first in this, right. we'll measure it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll record it and then you can go ahead and do what you want. So, so I think the bottom line is that the team that you surround yourself with has to be uh, somebody who you uh, like, you know, who you not only makes you better. Yeah, yeah. But they also are not afraid to call you out on, yeah. on you doing something like stupid. And, and the thing is that you yourself have to be open enough to the fact and, and not, um, arrogant enough to to say that it's me who makes everything go you know right. barely you're a really small cock in the entire wheel so yeah well and and there's a there's a sense of humility to that it's a humility to the the craft that you're trying to perfect and and you're someone who's really devoted a lot of study and rigor to the food um and value to almost the the food education and i love how you describe that that had, there's somebody else there who's sort of holding the the spice and and you know we do that in in education we have this whole concept of are you consciously competent or are you unconsciously competent right i mean if you're consciously competent that means that you re you're really aware of the improvements that are needed for the next step is, is that kind of the foundation for you at least i mean that that sensibility to being a great judge or a great teacher when it comes to food? I definitely think that having a strong foundation is very important. And that comes through education. That comes through uh, trying different things. That comes through being wrong countless number of times yeah. and being okay with saying that, yes, I was wrong and I am going to figure out what is right. So I do think it's a combination of everything. But I think what has really worked for me is always having an open mind and open ears. Mm -hmm. Because they are a lot of things. The fun part about being a judge is that, uh, you know, if, um, if there is something about pastas, right, and uh, if I'm on a panel, which doesn't have Scott Conan on it, who is like the guru when it comes to pasta, mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, I, I have a great understanding of it. But if there is pasta and he's there, I would want him to, you know, right. give his expertise. I know that it is so much better than than mine. Sure. Or when we talk about spices, everybody defers to me because that is my strong point. Yeah. And that's I think that's what it is. We become better judges because we are constantly learning from each other yeah. uh, based on the different cuisines that that we are 
proficient in. You, you know, tell me this, you've established now successful food venues in Chicago and New York and Nashville. Um, with this background of, of such a rich and vibrant tradition that, that we all have in, in sort of Indian culture, how important is it to integrate the local culture of these cities and these histories into the food that you create? Is, is there some value to being an Indian uh, you know, food experience in Chicago or in New York or in Nashville? Ha, has there been some um, you know, nod or some reverence at all to the history of those individual cities? I think absolutely. I think it's very, very important, more so now that I'm in Nashville, because there is this entire, you know, there is a pride of, of you know, uh, of being in the South. While in Chicago and New York, they are such, you know, metropolitan, such uh, cosmopolitan cities. That, that being said, over here, uh, and I think it also was a fact that when we moved over here, you know, me, me opening my first restaurant uh, in the South, like, the the warmth that we received, like the way people welcomed us over here. So we literally did, we did Chohan's Ode to Nashville, the meet and three, because, <laughs> you know, we had a meet and three over here, which we are like, this is what a thali is, yeah. right? Like it's the same yeah. thing or hot chicken. So we have hot chicken right. pakora. We just shamelessly call it on the menu, are not to Nashville. That's right. what it is. And and we we love using local ingredients. We love using local vendors and try to incorporate that as much as possible in our uh, menus. So much of that is deeply personal, right? The relationships you cultivate with the neighborhoods and the community around you as there's an element of food and the food experience becoming, you know, incredibly local and, and community-based. And I live in Berkeley and, you know, Alice Waters and, and that whole experience is, is certainly quite um, prevalent and prominent here. but. Um, I'm in, curious to hear what you think about this concept in, in a world where automation is growing and there's an expectation of perfection and that anything less than that is sort of disposable, right? So, you know, there are apps that can generate a William Shakespeare sonnet just by you typing in a few words. And, and you know, that, that automation is something that, you know, we are, are, are impressed by. But in the food experience, you know, how do you as a chef almost celebrate the imperfections or the, you know, the, the smallness of things? Um, you know, is there a value to that, that, that somehow in a world of automation and perfection that we are, we may be at risk of losing? Um, I remember when I was doing, uh, when I was at the CIA, the Culinary Institute of America, I was doing baking and pastry arts. And there was this really famous, um, you know, a cake designer who had come and I was helping her and she was making these petals, rose petals. And she was trying, you know, she was, she was making it and I was trying to make it. And I got, I was getting very frustrated because they weren't perfect. And she, she comes and tells me, she's like, remember, there's nothing in nature, which is perfect. And that's what makes it beautiful. Mm -hmm. So that is one of the reasons why I love charts. You look at charts, Right. There is nothing, there is nothing precise about it, right? Yeah. There is, it's like bale mixed together, thrown in a bowl, given to you, right? And there is 
beauty in that so to me i do think that there is beauty in the chaos of the world yeah. uh, uh, again like beauty lies in the eye of the beholder um uh, automation and a lot of these things getting automated does make our life simpler there they are things that i'm forever grateful to right like yeah. uh for example a blender right it's better right. than you know with with a stone and, yes. and making you know so so they are things that um that are a gift but in the end of the day they are some professions which will always need the human touch just because there is so much of soul involved mm. right yeah. and and that is and that's what it is there is a story there's a soul and machines can't provide that people can let me ask you this you're going to be um very heavily involved with the tournament of champions and what you just mentioned uh in these last uh, in this conversation has been about humility and collaboration and understanding your team um but in this aspect uh, are you a competitive person do you do oh you uh, do you now celebrate that idea of competition uh, as well as as the humility part again this is another thing which i i think it it comes with age right the fact that oh yeah definitely i'm a i'm a competitive person i i thrive under the you know the craziness of being given a task and yeah. and the fact that i mean that's how i operate every day be it like small things that oh, these are the tasks i need to do let's mm. get it done and you know get it over with i have seen myself evolve from when i competed on iron chef to to right now and uh, one of the biggest things that you learn is that it's okay to lose right losing is not the end all right. the experience is yeah. right like what have you walked away from that experience so that is that's that is amazing uh, but the second thing also is that you realize that every time you compete you're competing against yourself you're mm -hmm. not competing against the person uh you know uh, against you it is you yourself because you have to push yourself to be better to be more perfect you are challenging yourself that these are crazy circumstances yeah. and crazy combination which has been given to you are you smart enough are you resilient enough are you uh, let's say enough yeah adaptable. flexible enough adaptable enough to to rise to the challenge and then to overcome it yes. so i think that's why i do i do love i do love competing you know and and the creativity that's involved in that um especially like you mentioned and and i wonder if yes uh as you age and you have more experience you really just you know tend to appreciate that journey much more than than anything else i i'm so uh, curious about your your experience as a master chef as an educator as a entrepreneur you embody the notion of trust i mean food is such a incredibly sacred experience that we try and share with others but especially in those experience your experiencing your food um in the teams um that you have how do you cultivate trust in in yourself and in your food uh i think it's it's a matter of Uh, trust is a very mutual uh, experience right if you give trust to people you get trust back it's as simple as that if you respect others they will respect you one of the biggest things that i always tell people uh, is uh, and especially my team members right uh, again a lot of this i keep on going back to age right uh, the fact is when i was younger i thought that i thought that i needed to be indispensable to any 
any place that I was at. You know, that's the only way that I would succeed is that everybody needs me, that I need to be indispensable. But to succeed, you need to be dispensable. You need to make sure that what you're doing at a micro level uh, is taken care of somebody, uh, is taken care uh, of by somebody, and then you can look at the macro level, yeah. right? And I think that is very important. So one of the biggest ways I think that that has worked for us is the fact that the teams that we have, we trust them. We are like, yeah, you don't have to run everything by us. You think that it is okay to make this call, um, go for it. And we've also seen that because you do that, because you give the other person that respect and that that trust, that the trust is very rarely misused. And does that do you feel like that comes across then in the food that you create? Absolutely, because everybody is happy. Like right now at Johan, we've got this young chef who is like, you know, 28 and gung ho and, you know, first time doing Indian food. And then we're like, okay, come up with a menu. And he's come up with some incredible dishes, which we are like, you know, if if I was breathing down his neck all the time, he would have not created. right? Right. We're like, carte blanche, go for it. Right. And and then we do the tasting. It's not that like he'll come up with something and put it on the menu. We do the tasting. They are, you know, there is constructive criticism that we give. We're like, maybe we'll change this or we don't think that this will sell. Yeah. Uh, but it, it has to be constructive and it has to be encouraging. It has to be not crushing somebody's soul by saying that, you know, this doesn't work. You're like, OK, this doesn't work because of this. But if you change it in this way, let's go ahead and put it on the menu. Well, um, Manit, it's uh, obvious that the trust you build, the community you build, the food that you're creating is wonderful and lovely for all. This was such a lovely conversation. Thank you so much for joining me. And I hope you'll come back at some point soon. I look forward to it. Because every story told is a lesson learned. Because every lesson learned is a story waiting to be told. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share stories about South Asian people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Hear it every Monday, Tuesday on Ruckus Avenue Radio or wherever you get your podcast. Yo, what's up? This is DMC, and you can catch me on Ruckus Avenue Radio. Peace.